Hello, you're listening to Sarah McCoy's podcast. I've been a Bible teacher at Owasso First Assembly in Owasso, Oklahoma for over 40 years. And I love the way God's Word shows itself practical to today, time after time. Today's session is a special edition about the danger and pitfalls of making accusations. The title is The Trouble Over an Altar Named Ed. So if you'll go with me to the 22nd chapter of the book of Joshua, it's about 1400 BC or so. And the children of Israel have just finished conquering the land of Canaan. They were slaves in Egypt for many generations, and then God delivered them by the hand of Moses, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. After Moses died, Joshua was his successor, and Joshua led the people on a God-ordained campaign to conquer and inhabit the land of Canaan. Two of the 12 tribes of Israel, Reuben and Gad, and a little bit of the half-tribe of Manasseh, which was part of the tribe of Joseph, decided that they would like to inhabit the lands that were on the east side of the Jordan River. And even though they found their part early, they left their wives and children there and went with their brethren across the Jordan River and helped their brethren, the rest of the tribes of Israel, to conquer the region on the west side of Jordan. So that is all now finished, and we are beginning Joshua 22. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You've done all that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded, and you've obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you haven't deserted your fellow Israelites, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest, as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him to keep his commands, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Then Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their homes. So we'll skip down to verse 9. So the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in Canaan to return to Gilead, their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. So again, the Jordan River is the dividing line, and we have Gad and Reuben, two of the 12 tribes of Israel, that have decided to settle on the east side of the Jordan River, along with a little bit of the tribe of Manasseh, which is really half of the tribe of Joseph. And the rest of the people of Israel are going to be on the west side of the Jordan River. When they came to Gelilith, near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. That is the first important part of our story. They built an imposing altar. Verse 11, And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Gelilith, near the Jordan on the Israelite side, 
the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. So this is a desperate and dangerous emergency, and civil war is brewing, and they are ready to go and annihilate the Reubenites and the Gadites and part of the tribe of Manasseh. They haven't even had a discussion with them yet. They don't really know the facts, but they are ready to fight. Verse 13, so the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, now here we go with the accusations, and that was the point of today's podcast, the whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How's that for an accusation? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Wasn't the sin of Peor enough for us? They knew that Moses had said in the law that Israelites were not to offer any burnt offerings or sacrifices on any altars except the one that went with the tent tabernacle in the wilderness and Remember that the tent tabernacle contained the Ark of the Covenant, and that was the job of the Levites. But they didn't know that that wasn't the purpose of this altar. And when they said, wasn't the sin of Peor enough for us, they were referring to something that had happened about eight years before. It's recorded in Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. There had been a prophet named Balaam who was not an Israelite, but he was hired by one of Israel's arch enemies, King Balak of Moab. And King Balak wanted this prophet Balaam to curse the Israelites. And the prophet Balaam was certainly willing to do that for money, and he tried to on several occasions, but the Lord would not allow him to do so. And so he found a way to get at the Israelites for the sake of their enemies, the Moabites, by enticing the women of Moab and of Midian to seduce the men of Israel. And the Lord was angry with the people. 24,000 people died as a result. So, okay, the prophet Balaam didn't actually curse the people, but he certainly did get them in trouble so that he could have favor with King Balak of Moab. And that's what the Israelites were remembering when they said, wasn't the sin of Peor enough for us? They are rightfully concerned about doing anything that would go against the law, but they are terribly accusatory. So to remind you of what those two accusatory questions sounded like, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? So the only information that they have is that an altar has been built. They haven't seen any sacrifices being offered on it, and they haven't had a conversation. And then they say, how could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? So they have accused them of being in rebellion, turning away from the Lord, and breaking faith with the God of Israel. Those are pretty serious words. 
and they go on. Up to this very day, we haven't cleansed ourselves from that sin, meaning the sin of Peor. Even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and share the land with us. But don't rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, didn't wrath come on the whole community of Israel? He wasn't the only one who died for his sin. So now they're thinking back to something that happened maybe a year ago that is recorded in Joshua 7, where Achan had taken some of the stash of the people of Jericho instead of turning it over as he had been commanded. Then Reuben Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel. Talk about being put on the defensive. They really had to say something quickly and carefully because they are getting ready to be attacked. Verse 22, the mighty one God the Lord, the mighty one God the Lord, he knows and let Israel know. If this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, don't spare us this day. If we've built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our ancestors built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices. Other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas the priest and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phinehas son of Eleazar the priest said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us, because you haven't been unfaithful to the Lord in this matter. Now you've rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. Then Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites and Gadites in Gilead and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praised God, and they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, Ed, a witness between us that the Lord is God. 
you will read Ed, E-D, a witness between us that the Lord is God. If you look in the King James Version or the Complete Jewish Bible or the Orthodox Jewish Bible, other versions will simply say a witness between us because they don't tell you what the Hebrew word for witness is. But I think it's best and easiest to remember this by calling it the trouble over an altar named Ed. And so we can start to see how very dangerous and ungodly accusations actually are, even if they're true, but they weren't in this particular case. So let's begin with the strife and the division that awful accusations can cause. I'm thinking of 1 Peter 3 verse 8. Peter said, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now that does not sound like the attitude of the men of Israel that went over and accused their brethren of basically rebelling against God. There was certainly no unity of mind. So strife and division are not God's plan. There might be times when there has been some offense that's so egregious that people do have to say, we cannot have fellowship with you anymore. But most of the time, things can be worked out if there is the goal of unity. The second of the reasons why accusations are ungodly and should not be a part of the way that we communicate with our brethren is because most of the time they tend to be unfair. Proverbs 25 verse 8 says, Do not hastily bring into court, for what will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? What he's actually saying here is that you better think long and hard before you haul someone into court because much of the time you don't have the whole story and in a court of law, when it comes time for the defendant to say their side of things, then you will realize that you weren't fair and you'll be embarrassed and the ruling will not be in your favor. So if they had simply waited to find out before hauling these accusations against their brethren, it would have been so much less confrontational. The third of the reasons why accusations are ungodly is that they require you to be the judge. And judgment is the purpose of the Lord himself. Matthew 7, 1 and 2 says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The fourth of the reasons why accusations are ungodly after strife and division, unfairness, and requires judging is that it makes us blind to our own sin. Romans 2.1 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And I'm reminded of the time that the woman taken in adultery was brought by the religious leaders to Jesus to find out what he would say. Because according to the law, adultery was a capital offense punishable by death. So 
in this particular case, the accusations of the Pharisees were correct. This woman had eyewitnesses. She had actually been in this adulterous relationship. But when they kept on questioning Jesus, he straightened up and said to them in John 8, 7, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. So you see, the problem was not that a woman should be called to account for committing a terrible sin that was specifically prohibited in the Torah, but it was that her accusers in their self-righteousness, focusing on her sin, were forgetting that they had sins of their own. They had become prideful. So once again, accusations are ungodly because they create strife and division. That was the first thing. They're usually unfair. That was the second thing. They require us to judge. That's the third thing. They make us blind to our own sin. That's the fourth thing. And fifth, they are a tactic of Satan himself. You know, Revelation 12.10 tells us that Satan is the accuser of our brothers. And Jude, which has only one chapter, verse 9 says, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. This is a fascinating verse that refers to the fact that after Moses died alone on the mountain, God buried him. And there is a little bit of additional information here than what we just have in the law, where it talks about his death in Deuteronomy. Apparently, there was some sort of confrontation between the archangel Michael and Satan. But this verse tells us that accusations are so unseemly that even when it was the devil who had done a wrong thing, the archangel Michael did not feel comfortable accusing him, but instead dealt with it by saying, the Lord rebuke you. So if we know that accusations are not godly, then what are some alternatives to them? Well, there's two things. First of all, asking questions, and secondly, listening closely to the answers. So, Asking questions is beautifully exemplified in Genesis 3 when God calls to account Adam and Eve after the first sin. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Isn't that so very interesting? Here is God Almighty who has specifically told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they have rebelled and done it anyway. And when he calls them to account, instead of saying, you have eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from, or you dirty, rotten sinner, or boy, are you ever in big trouble. He just asks questions. First, he says, where are you? And then he says, who told you that you were naked? And then he says, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Questions. And yet he was able to get a confession from them without accusing them. Then 
Another beautiful alternative to awful accusations is to simply listen to what the other person has to say. And to the Israelites' credit in our story in Joshua 22, after those railing accusations that were in question form, they really did give time to listen to see what Reuben and Gad and part of the tribe of Manasseh had to say. And then they said, okay, we were wrong. We misunderstood. It's okay for you to have this altar. Now we see that you aren't going to offer sacrifices on it, so it's all right. Proverbs 18.13 says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Have you ever done that? Just started talking without listening to what the person was going to say, and you were wrong about what it was that they were going to tell you? James 1.19, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. What if the Israelites had been slow to anger and slow to accuse and listened, listened, listened? Then, instead of an ugly confrontation, they would have just had a constructive conversation. Titus 3.2, To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And I certainly think that perfect courtesy toward all people would include listening, listening, listening. And so we see that it's very, very easy to jump to conclusions and to become accusatory. But as the altar named Ed reminds us, the witness between the people of Israel and the other people of Israel, Gad and Reuben and part of Manasseh, we must first of all ask questions and then carefully listen and not judge and accuse because somebody's motives cannot be known to you and they are accountable to God. Let's not accuse. Let's simply ask and listen. If this podcast has been a help to you, please pass it along. 